Today we're going to be in Acts chapter uh, 19, starting with verse 21. We're going to finish up the chapter. The last time we saw the difference that the Holy Spirit makes in a person's life. And there were several examples given. Today we're going to see the ruckus in Ephesus over pretty much the effects of changed lives. Starting with verse 21, two verses. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. The first thing we see is, it says, when these things were accomplished. What things? Well, we covered two weeks back that we saw the word of God and the fear of God go through all of the Roman province of Asia, which we now know is modern-day Turkey. And how did that happen? Well, one great example was the seven sons of Siva, if you remember. The exorcists, there was seven of them, and they tried to cast out a demon from a man. And they said, we adjure you by the Jesus that Paul preaches, come out of the man. And the demon was like, wait a minute, Jesus I know, Paul I'm pretty familiar with, but who the heck are you? <laughs> so the demon-possessed man jumped on these guys, beat, them, beat the tar out of them, and sent them away naked, which was probably very humiliating. Uh, so what we saw was, the result was the Ephesians took all their witchcraft and their books, and they put them, and they made a big bonfire. And the tally was in the millions of dollars what all this stuff was worth, their charms, their amulets, their books. And they set a big fire and they burned it all because they were so blown away by the power of Jesus that they're like, the stuff we're practicing is useless. So you see, people were changed. Now, what you saw also in that portion of Scripture was the name of Jesus was important because the name of Jesus had power. But see, that's only part of the equation. The name of Jesus didn't have power to those who weren't familiar with Jesus. See, the Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But to go to that is for, for you to uh, worship on, uh, under adoration instead of obligation, you have to have a relationship with Jesus. Paul had the relationship with Jesus. Peter had the relationship with Jesus. Therefore, they were able to cast out demons. The seven sons of Siva did not. So after these things were accomplished... Verse 21 also says, Paul purposed in the spirit. God gave Paul a divine plan. Go to Rome. And he didn't say, Paul, go to Rome. The Colosseum's there. There's some statues. You know, have, have a blast. Go on vacation. Big sightseeing tour. That's not what he was talking about. Paul was to go to Rome and preach the gospel, but ultimately it would end up in his death. Newsflash. Sometimes God wants to glorify him and not us in his plan. And I say that facetiously. Because to Western Christians, sometimes that's a bitter pill to swallow. Because we all want to glorify ourselves, even if there's a little bit in our heart that's, that's there, even when we think we're glorifying God. Let me give you an example. Look at me, I'm successful. I have a successful ministry because I'm successful. Isn't that what we're taught? It's not biblical. It's not according to the Bible. If you look at Christian TV, they're all successful, right? So our ministries are successful, conversely. Well, not according to the scripture. As a matter of fact, Harry Flaherty was here last week, for those of you who weren't, a uh, big football star in his day, and he was popular. He, was, uh, you know, uh, he had all these awards for playing football and all. But if you remember his testimony, he basically, when his career started to go down because of an injury, that's when God really used him. 
You see, God's plan in his life started to skyrocket when his success and his, you know, aggrandizement started to to go down. It was like an inverse relationship. And you see that with Paul, too. Some will go as far to say is, well, God didn't lead me to this course of ministry because it's not agreeable to me, because it's not comfortable to me. Well, God isn't calling to me, me to do that because I'm not using my talents. Sometimes God just wants to see if we're obedient. A lot of ministry that we see today in America is vainglory. It, it's not really glorifying God, but it's glorifying ourselves. And again, measure it by Paul and measure it by um, a team of missionaries that we have in Afghanistan right now that in August they're going to be in the States and they're going to give their testimony about what they're doing in Afghanistan. And if you see how they live, by our standards, they live like poor people. Where's the glory in that? The glory in that is it's not about them. It's about God and his plan. Verse 22. It says that Timothy and Erastus ministered to Paul. Ministered. There's a few words in the Greek for service, and minister is one of them, believe it or not. They served Paul. They, um, you know, they comforted Paul. They helped to lift his arms, so to speak. Paul gets a lot of attention, but we see through this that not one person is more important than another in the body of Christ. I just want you know, Timothy and Erastus, you could read that it's a blurb, and by the time you're done today, Timothy and who was the other guy's name? I don't remember him. But Timothy and Erastus' are crucial in ministry because they help keep the Pauls from getting burned out. We need the Timothy and Erastuses. There's nothing more refreshing to me than somebody saying to me, let me take that off your plate. Continue to pray and continue to uh, put the word together. Let me do that for you, Pastor Joe. Let me tell you something. I probably, if you've done that for me, I say thank you, thank you, to the point where it's obsessive compulsive. I want to make sure that I thank you and that you know that I really appreciate that you did that for me. Timothy's and Erastus's. John Don's favorite, probably most of you don't know who John Don is, but his favorite line was, no man is an island. I can't do Calvary Chapel Crossfields by myself, and I don't intend to. I need the rest of you as the body of Christ to help lift my arms so we can serve each other and we can glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Consequently now, Paul sends Timothy and Erastus where? To Macedonia. Why? To minister to other people. Why? Because Paul found that Timothy and Erastus were trustworthy. They were faithful. You see? So you think, well, I have a small role in the church. But when you're found faithful in the little things, God will use you. Okay, you can handle that. Let's move you on to something else. He'll, he'll have you faithful in the bigger things. No great preacher or great apostle started great. They started down serving. You see what I'm saying? So it's that progression that God does to you. And when those in leadership say, wow, that person is faithful, whatever we give them to do, they, you know, they, they do it uh, joyfully, then that person is trusted enough to move on and to feed other sheep, okay, and the sending church or the sending body says, I can sleep well at night knowing they're going to take care of those sheep over there in Macedonia or wherever it may be. Verse 23. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way or Christianity. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. 
So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of Ephesus, of the Ephesians. So here's the deal in a nutshell. These silversmiths, right? The silversmiths guild, which you could compare today to our trade unions. They made idols or statues. And there was good money made in it. They made these little silver, you know, fashioned it with a chisel or whatever, however you make a silver idol uh, into this, this figure. And they would sell it. Here's your God. You know, give me some money. And that was their business. So they got together and they say, hey, we're losing money. As more people are converted to Christ, there's less idols that are needed from us. Business is going down, right? So the plan was to rile up the citizens against the Christians under the guise of protecting the Ephesian heritage to which the goddess Diana, or Artemis in the Greek, was the center of worship. Did you know, see, this is, there's a cultural thing going on here. Did you know, if you look up secular history, does anybody know what the seven wonders of the ancient world are? Anybody? You know them all? It's not, I don't know them all. But the temple of Diana in Ephesus was one of them, along with the uh, pyramids at Giza in Egypt, right? the pyramids, the hanging gardens of Babylon, all the great seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple of Diana was one of those. So there was a lot of cultural, a lot of nationalism, a lot of pride. See, I like to give people a background. So you're not just reading the Bible, but you're going into history and understanding why people behave the way they behave. A few points regarding these idols. Number one, the merchants were only defending their profits. They spun the story to make their cause look altruistic, as if they really cared about Ephesian heritage. The truth wasn't important here. The truth about their motives wasn't important. The truth about the true God wasn't important. The only truth here to them was profit margin. And my question is, has mankind changed? Has religion changed? This was the deal. You, you give me some money, I give you a little God, you go home and worship it. You can behave however you want the rest of the week. This is your religion. And religion kind of is the same way today. People want to go, I keep talking about drive-through religion. Pay their money, feel good about themselves, hear something, a nice sermon, and then continue to do what they want the rest of the week. That's religion. A brother in the Lord sent me an article uh, not too long ago, or an email, and here's how it went. A woman of, of Eastern Indian descent sent an email to others of the same descent, and sh she had a concern. And she said, in India, you know, our, our, our Hindu gods, polytheism, is being threatened. Because the Muslims are coming in and they're taking us over by force in some areas, you know, through, through violence. And the Christians, through other means, are also taking us over and preaching Christianity. And her concern was we're losing our heritage. Now, heritage is great. I don't care where you come from. Jesus transcends all heritage backgrounds. There's a difference between heritage and what you worship. Because what you worship will determine your eternal salvation. So her concern, instead of looking into this monotheism... Is Islam right? Is Christianity right? Is Hinduism right? Her concern was that, that India was being changed. The face of India was being changed away from Hinduism. Now, an interesting point to note was that, and we've talked about Atlas. I believe Atlas was, he was either Greek or Roman. Supposedly he held up the world on his back, pretty buff guy. But when we went out into space and took a picture of the earth, no Atlas. <laughs> You've got to kind of reject that, don't you? you? Certainly shouldn't worship him. Second thing is, in Hinduism, one of the gods is Ganesh, the elephant god. Same thing. 
he has this, people have pictures of the elephant god with the earth on his back. He's holding up the earth. You go out into space, you take a picture of the earth, there's no Ganesh. You can't follow Ganesh anymore. So people don't look for the truth a lot of times. They look for what did, what did my parents do? What did my grandparents do? That's what I'm going to do. I've even seen that in voters. Well, I'm going to vote this way because my parents have always traditionally voted this way. Can you think for yourself? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So what you worship is very important. The second thing is the gospel was putting the guild out of business. How? Well, the true adherence to the gospel changes lives for the better. Now, imagine some professions being put out of business because people's lives are changed. And just think in your mind about a few that may come to your mind. I think of, there's a place, and I'm not going to say where it is, I don't want you to pick it or anything like that, that has basically... All they do is specialize in divorce, speedy divorces, you know, we're going to get you out of that marriage as quick as possible. And what they're doing is they're making money. They're making a lot of money because you ever see the War of the Roses? A long time ago, I saw that people were so angry, the couple was so angry at each other that they would destroy the house and destroy everything they had because they hated each other and they didn't want the other person to get it. Right. And this is what happens a lot in divorce. There's bitter feelings. See it all the time. There's bitter feelings, and then someone comes along and says, I'll get you out of that marriage. Just pay me, and like, I want to get out of that marriage. I'll give you whatever. Here's the house, whatever you want, my savings, and they end up making a fortune. But if lives were changed, then people actually loved each other. I actually adore my spouse, and I know she adores me. I've known her for 15 years. We've been married for 10. I could do another 15 years, no problem. I, it sounds like prison. I shouldn't have said it that way. <laughs> I could do 15 years. No, but I love my wife. It's just a slip of the tongue. And, uh, you know, marriage is a good thing. But what I'm saying is a marriage, imagine if spouses loved each other, right? You have a, a troubled marriage and you start loving each other. You start having that love of Christ for your spouse. We're going to put the divorced people out of business now, aren't we? Another uh, profession that may be put out of business, the pornographers. And all I can say is these guys are sleazes. I don't know, slander a lot, whatever, that, but Hugh Hefner, Larry Flint, all these porn merchants. They have these disgusting magazines. They're all perverts. That's all you can say about these guys. And I hope they're having a good time now because hell's not going to be hot enough for these guys. They teach young girls that they should show their bodies. They have this new thing now where uh, teens are taking naked pictures of themselves and sending the pictures to other teens. This is like a dating, a courting process. And they end up on the Internet or YouTube. But these porn merchants, imagine if we could put them out of business because there's no uh, demand for it. What about the dope dealers? Same thing. If there's no demand for dope, you put the dope dealers out of business. How many people, how many here know someone that they love that's gotten involved with dope, some type of drug or heroin or things like that? People I know, okay? And it's, it's, it's awful. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, it's, it's amazing how people will, will rational, rationalize things. Uh, some of the big um, uh, cocaine smugglers, if, you, if they're interviewed, they say, the Americans want it. We're making a fortune. If they don't want it anymore, we won't produce it. It's supply and demand. It's simple economics. Don't demand it. Um, you know, no different than Demetrius and his pals making money off keeping people in bondage to sin and despair. Mankind has not changed. Kind of on a funny note, if everyone's lives were changed and everyone, you know, was filled with the Holy Spirit and everyone read their Bible and knew their Bibles, there probably would be no need for police and no need for pastors. So you'd all have to support me because I'd be begging out on the streets, right? But as we grow in Christ, hopefully our taste for worldliness and carnality should decrease. Our demand for idolatry should decrease. The third point, 
What was said was that the town folk were in a frenzy. They were in a frenzy. Great is Diana of Ephesus. What were they doing? They're protecting their goddess, right? As if it was a real person. I want to turn to Psalm 15, starting with verse 3. There's only a few verses here. Psalm 115, starting in verse 3. This shows the folly of, of the worship of anything but the true God, God Almighty, the King of the universe. In verse 3, it says, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. If you're really good at sculpturing, you can make a, a statue look so lifelike. And so, you know, um, some of these, was it Michelangelo, the, the, the David or whatever? I mean, you could see the veins in his arms, and he really made it out of um, stone. It's incredible the workmanship out of men's hands. But you can make a mouth and an idol, but they can't speak. That mouth is useless. It's out of a piece of stone or metal. It says that they have eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. And those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. That's the folly of worshiping anything but, but God himself. What was really pathetic is they had to protect their God from being harmed by men. And if somebody came over your house and you had your little silver Diana and somebody knocked it off the table, Diana couldn't pick herself back up. You'd have to go and help your God. Diana, let me put you back on the pedestal. This was the folly of worshiping these gods. And my question to you is, how big is your God? How big is your God? Now, I can't read your minds. Some of you may have come here and have a struggling marriage. Some of you may come here and have trouble with finances. Some of you may come here and have wayward kids. You know, everyone has a story. And, and I can't read your mind. Only God knows what's going on in your life. Only God knows the pain and the suffering that you may be dealing with in your life. But how big is your God, you see? And I know in times in my life when I'm going through a very hard time, and if, if it's not getting better, I know that there's a reason for it, you know? And I know that God can. I know he can do it. I don't say, oh, this is hopeless. God can't do anything in my situation. I know he can because he's a big God. And if he's not, then the, then the second point I have to think about is what is he trying to show me through this? You know, is there sin in my life? Am I, am I ignoring him? Am I not paying attention to him? Is this just something to build my character? Is this just something to build my faith? I've been through some, some hard times in my life, and when I see how it's changed me, I, I don't want to go back and, and, and make it better so I, I have really fuzzy memories all the time because it's what God wanted to do in my life. So my question is, how big is your God? Do you believe that whatever your problem is, he is able to sustain you. Is he able? Because I know what my God is capable of. Do we put God in a box? Do we shorten his arm like the Bible says, thinking that he can't do anything because his arm is shortened? It was a figure of speech. Do we not fully trust him with our lives or with our kids or with our finances or with our futures? Are we all saying, yeah, sure, I trust God, but with our actions, we're telling a different story. These are questions that we have to ask ourselves. Do we believe in Diana, the God like that, or do we believe that our God is all-powerful, omnipotent? Four, last point here on these gods. We may think it's silly that the Ephesians worship these little idols, 
But did you know that an idol or idolatry or a god is anything that you put in front of God Almighty? And man, if we, you know, I usually have a cadence to my speech, you know, it flows. But I want to stop for a moment and think about in your mind this morning, what is it in your life that, that you might be struggling with or that keeps getting in the way of your worship of God? Think about it. What is it that you're putting all your time into, all your energy into, all your money into? Something or someone, if, they, if a brother or sister confronts you, you immediately get defensive about. Okay, think about that. Something or someone you're willing to protect at any cost. Relationship issues. Could be a career that you're addicted to. Could be, I like to use myself as an example because I've done all the dumb things so that you don't have to. Something inanimate. Guys, um, I'm a little bit of a, when I was a teen, I was a motorhead. I used to love taking apart cars and Probably when my back hurts, I'm always, always bending over the hood and all. But I've kind of given a lot of that up. A few years back, actually many years back, when I was newly married, I got this car, and I wanted to kind of restore it, right? And uh, all I could think about when I put my head on the pillow was what I was going to do, the carburetor the next morning or this or that. And I actually would toss and turn until I fell asleep because I just couldn't wait to get up and work on this car. Well, I put so much time into the car that certainly it was taken away from my devotional life with the Lord. But not only that, it was taking away my, my time with my wife. And after a while, my wife coined a phrase for the car. She called it Christine. So you've seen the movie <laughs> where the car is like possessed and it takes over the guy. You know, <laughs> well, I filled it in for the rest of you. She goes, Christine, she's going out to, to be with Christine again. So I eventually got rid of the car. It just consumed me. You know, it was a weird thing. But anything, inanimate objects, that's even the worst. Something that, you know, when in the end, the Bible says it's all going to burn. Uh, Peter tells us about the, 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 the molecules, in a sense, coming apart, the stoichia, and uh, everything just melting with fervent heat. If it's not your soul, your spirit, everything else you see around here is going to burn. So why have such an attachment to something especially that's inanimate? All right? Verse 29. So the whole city was filled with confusion. And rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Astarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not even know why they had come together." I want to take a moment to explain a little bit more this Ephesian patron goddess, okay, the background. And there's different sources. There's what the Bible tells us. There are historical sources, which they jive. And there's uh, some folklore and legend uh, sources. But let me just give it to you in a nutshell. Supposedly, a meteorite or some type of object crashed in that area of Ephesus. Uh, and when they found the item, it had the vague shape of a woman. <laughs> so what does man do? He worships it. Right. It's 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 a, it's a goddess. It came from heaven. So they, they worship it. It becomes venerated. And it was known originally as the lady of Ephesus. Now, let me show you the progression here. Historically, the, the lady of Ephesus became a pantheon fertility goddess freakish, freakishly characterized by multiple breasts. OK, they still have some of the little idols that they dug up archaeologists. And it's a female goddess. And this, she just has rows of breasts. OK, very bizarre looking um, pornographic, whatever. The Lady of Ephesus later became associated over the years with the Greek goddess Artemis, who was different, different patron goddess, goddess of different things. 
when the Romans took over, the Roman counterpart was Diana. So actually, you can look. You may say, Pastor Joe, I'm confused. I looked at different Bibles. Some say Diana. Some say Artemis. Some say, there's your answer. It's all the same basic thing, but depending on the time period, they called her different things based on who was in charge at the time. So, uh, you know, Diana went through a lot of changes. It seems that she certainly was suffering from identity crisis, but that's pretty much Diana. In verse 29, we see that the residents rushed into the theater. Now, in Ephesus, archaeologists today have found that uh, there was a, an open-air auditorium that could seat up to 25,000. So there was this big auditorium that I think it still exists today in, in the ruins. So Gaius and Aristarchus were seized in Paul's absence by the forming mob and forced into this theater. That's what's going on. And you see here mob mentality. What is that? It's basically the exchange of rational thought for the rush, the thrill, and the power of being part of an unstoppable mob. You see it after sports events, don't you? doesn't matter if it's basketball or football or whatever it is, especially if there's contention. I mean, you saw what Anthony did in the beginning of church, talking about the different teams, right? So if there's contention among the fans, they get out of the, out of the stadium and one's upset because their team lost, and they start fighting with the other fans and overturning cars and lighting garbage on fire, you know then the police have to come in and get a headache. But you see it after sports events. You also see it in gang violence. If you look at the statistics in New Jersey, especially Middlesex County, there's a whole task force in law enforcement that's, that's designed to deal with the gangs because they're overrunning New Jersey, okay? And some of you have actually come to me and say, there's, there's gangs in my neighborhood, gang members. But gang violence, again, it's the rush, the thrill, the power of being part of an unstoppable mob and putting fear and intimidation into people. Exodus 23.2 says, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. It's even commanded in the Old Testament. But many still follow the crowd. And we can, we can look at the unbelievers and say, what a bunch of foolish people. Look what they're doing. Look at the riots. Look at this. But you know what? What about Christians do it? What about Christians get caught up in the moment? What about Christians get caught up in emotionalism? I've had one, more than one occasion to point Christians back to Scripture. And if they're caught up in emotionalism or they're caught up in the moment, you know what, they tune me out. Maybe everyone else is doing it, or they start to rationally, you know, it's, it's a weird thing to examine how people think and their thought processes. Everyone else is doing it, or they start to rationalize it as if God is okay with their sin of adultery, but nobody else is because, you know, they're in love, or because this was my soulmate and the one I married wasn't. And you hear all this stuff. It's just rationalization. I got, my question to you is, have you ever get... Have you ever got consumed with a cause? And then the follow-up question is, are you known by a cause? What's your cause? What's Joe DeProsimo known as? Hopefully, I'm known as somebody who is, is grounded in the Bible and just, is just insane about just keeping to give the, the gospel and the scripture to people. But some of us can get caught up in a cause that really has nothing to do with Christianity, but that's what we're known as. You know, is it, is it a health thing? Is it, um, is it a club that you belong to? Is it, it could be anything, your cause, that you're global warming, whatever it is. But our only overriding cause should be the cause of Christ. And when we're grounded in the cause of Christ, the tributaries flow to other like-minded things. It's not wrong to be part of a, a club or any of the things that I mentioned, but Christ has to be preeminent. He has to be our foundation because anything else is dysfunctional if that comes before him. In verse 30, we see that Paul, his friends are taken into the theater and there's a mob and you know, Paul's thinking, what, what's going to happen to them? So Paul tries to go in after his friends to uh, probably try to help out there or maybe to take the heat 
by himself. Because Paul, we know, was a stand-up guy. He wasn't content with having his companions taking in in his stead, okay? And I'm sure Paul also wanted to use it as an opportunity to preach the gospel to the crowd, which he often did. Now, let me put this in perspective to say what type of man Paul was. Some people come to me and say, Pastor Joe, I couldn't do what you do. You know, even if if I'm going to get up there and you're going to pray for me for going out on a missions trip or whatever, I can't speak in front of a crowd. I don't want to open my mouth. Now, I'm a little nervous sometimes up here, but not much. I'm kind of getting used to it. But just now let's change the perspective. Most of you, you're not a hostile crowd. You're not booing and throwing things at me, right? Not yet anyway. (laughs) But, you know, in Paul's situation, he would go before crowds, hundreds of people, thousands, without security, right? The Pope has his... um, bulletproof glass and his security people. So he's, he's well protected. But Paul wasn't. He would go out there without any protection and in front of largely hostile people, and they would seize him, they would beat him, they would throw him in prison. All these things would happen to him. So let's just put it in perspective and just see what type of a person the Apostle Paul was. So he was really a stand-up guy, a good example. And in verse 32, we see that the theater was filled with confusion. What do we know about confusion? What does the Bible say about confusion? Well, we know that Satan is the author of confusion, and God is the author of order and peace. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14. So all that was happening here was, it goes into this theater, and there's a cacophony of shouting and disjointed accusations. And, And you can see, one is shouting one thing, and one is shouting the other. They don't even know why they're there. They don't even know what they're going to charge Gaius and Aristarchus with. They're just in a frenzy. And we saw that with Jesus, didn't we? His false accusers came in front of Jesus, and one said one thing and one said another. It was by Jesus' own words that they convicted him. You know, I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. Oh, thank God he said it. He incriminated himself because those other knuckleheads couldn't come together on a consensus. And the same thing is happening here in the theater. Verse 33. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew... All with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. What's happening here is that there's a Jewish contingent, okay, that puts Alexander to the forefront as their representative or as their leader, almost as if to say, Hey, Ephesians, you know, we're a monotheist too, but we're not with the Christians. You know, just, it's cool. You do what you got to do with them, but, you know, please leave us alone. Because, they, of course, they didn't want to get persecuted. And I look at this as trying to appease the crowds for the wrong reason. Trying to save your skin when you should stand up for the righteous. Because in the end, this plan of Alexander's and the, the rest of the Jews was a loser. Why? Because the crowd became just as much anti-Jewish, probably would have been less anti-Jewish had he not stood up. The crowd became just as much anti-Jewish as it became anti-Christian. And that's often the results. I look at these as poor leadership de- decisions. Catering to evil catering to sin, catering to bad behavior for the sake of not being persecuted yourself. I've seen people do it. They want to be liked. They don't want to be persecuted. So they kind of go with the flow, okay, because they don't want to have problems. If you're a leader and your overriding desire is to be liked, it'll be a disastrous leadership. I'll tell you that right now. And again, I've had this conversation. Now, it doesn't mean as a leader we're supposed to be offensive. You know, we're supposed to be, get along with people as much as we can. But if we have something to preach, if we have something to say, and God has called us to say it, we stand firm in that, and we don't back away from it. In the end, again, there was a compromise in God's will, and 
they also didn't have the, the, um, the, the likability of the people. So in the end, Alexander and his, his fellow um, uh, people had, had nothing in the end. They had uh, just heartache from both ends. And I'll tell you this, I'll leave you with this, just in case you're uh, wondering about what I'm saying. If you show me any Christian leader, okay, and maybe some will come to your mind, show me any Christian leader who wants to be loved by everybody and who's made friends with the world especially, and I'll show you a Christian leader at some point in their career, and I'll point it out for you, where their doctrine has gone south. Because if they're looking to please everyone, they're going to have to compromise the word of God because God's word, the Bible tells us, is offensive. So if you're in leadership and your desire, overriding emotion, is to be liked, find something else to do because it's not going to work. Verse 35. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus or from heaven, alternate translation. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And again, alternate translation, that we are in danger of, of being charged with rebellion. And I'll get into that. And last verse, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, What's kind of interesting about this is you see um, a point of history, a point of the Jewish prudence system at that time, which is actually very similar to ours. If you really follow the town clerk's words, who we could say he's sort of like a mayor that we would have, and you, and you look at the, the legal redress, you know, the, the redress that the people would have available to them if they were wronged, it's very similar to our jurisprudence system. But the town clerk or the mayor, I look at this as looking to save his own skin. Now, the reason why I say that is because Ephesus, if you know your history, was a free city. That means even though the Romans were aggregately or federally controlling the world, they allowed certain cities that they deemed reliable to be free cities. They could kind of work in autonomy. They could uh, vote for their own mayors. They could have elected officials. And they kind of ran autonomous of the government, although there were certain things that they would have to pay the government. So uh, Ephesus was one of those cities, and one of the things that the Romans would not tolerate was civil disobedience. And you could see that they showed grace at times, but when they finally got fed up with you, they would come in very hard and start slaughtering the people. So the, the mayor's attitude here is, listen, this is a problem that we're gathering like this. If it gets back to the Roman officials, we're going to be in danger of losing our free city status. So this is a little point of history here. And the last point um, that I'm going to let Wearsby make is, I was going to plagiarize, but I don't think plagiarizing is right, so I'm just going to read it. <laughs> I like Wearsby because he's, uh, he's kind of succinct. You know, he's pithy in, in how he kind of sums it up. But he says this. Um, he says, Ephesus is gone. Let's put this in perspective. Ephesus is gone, and so is the worldwide worship of Diana of the Ephesians. The city and the temple are gone, and the silversmith's guild is gone. Ephesus is a place visited primarily by archaeologists and people on Holy Land tours. Yet the gospel of God's grace and the church of Jesus Christ are still here. We have four inspired letters that were sent to the saints in Ephesus. Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Revelation 2, 1 through 7. The name of Paul is honored, but the name of Demetrius is forgotten. 
were it not for Paul, ironically, we would not have met Demetrius in the first place. The church ministers by persuasion, not propaganda. We share God's truth, not man's religious lies. Our motive is love, not anger. And the glory of God, not the praise of men. This is why the church goes on, and we must keep it so. So it kind of puts everything in perspective for you. A lot of things in the scripture are historical notes. If you do your history and look up um, history, you'll find that all this stuff coincides with what the Bible says. But all this false worship, the fires of vesture, the Romans said. And they, the Romans were around close to a thousand years. And we're, baby, uh, we're a baby nation compared to the Romans. Fires of vesture would burn forever. They're not burning anymore, but the Passover is still kept. You see, you see the perspective? God's will will always be accomplished. God's will will always be perpetual. But man's will will come to nothing. It'll, if something new will, will come up, and then after a few years it will come to nothing again. So that's why we've got to stick with God. So the question is, what was the impetus for the uproar in Ephesus? Well, a drop in sales and idolatry. Why did the sales of idols drop? Because people's lives were changed. What was the impetus or the driving force for changed lives? The gospel of Jesus Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit. In this case, truly, as you've probably heard the expression, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, right? We must change if we're... If we're to call ourselves children of God. If we're not being changed as a result of Jesus Christ, we'll always be part of the Ephesian system. And what is the Ephesian system? It's a picture of the world system. A life of carnality, a life of worldliness, a life of double-mindedness with a cloak of religion to go over it. And that's the big thing, change, change. The thing that we hate the most is the thing that we need to be. I've changed a lot, even um, in my life and even since I've been a pastor. And if I dug my heels in and resisted that change, I would have probably stepped down by now. Because you either go with the flow of what God is doing, or you do your own thing. And if you do your own thing, you don't grow. That's just the way it is. And none of us, how many of you, raise your hand, would like somebody, a fellow brother or sister, to come up to you and say, I've got to talk to you. You need to change. Right away, our defenses would go up, because we don't want to change. We like being who we are. I don't want to change. I don't want to change and you say, I could be a better husband. I could be a better father. I could be a better employee, right? We say praise the Lord to everybody on Sunday, but when we go to work, how do we treat our boss? Are we obedient? When my sergeant tells me what to do, as long as it's not immoral or unethical or illegal, I say, what are you asking me for? You're the sarge. If you want my advice, I'll give it to you, but whatever you say, I do. I know how to be subservient, you see? So we, we have to change. We have to be better. We have to be conformed into the image of Christ. Jesus went to the cross not because uh, the, the Romans overpowered him. It's because he went because of love. He was submissive to the Father's will. I'm sure when that first spike was driven into his wrist, you know, and I did the study on the, the carpal bones and all the nerves that run through the wrist on, on a few Easter's back, I'm sure that shit sent lightning bolts through his shoulder. And he probably said, whoa, this is not what I signed up for. But you know what? He let the other one go in and the one's in his feet. And he, he bled to death, Right? But why did he do it? Because he was submissive to the Father's will. We need to learn how to change as Christians. Because if we don't, what we're going to find is, we're going to find a struggle in our own souls. God is asking us to change, and we're saying, no, I don't want to. And there's always going to be that struggle. And what you're either going to do is you're going to follow God, or you're going you're to just have problems with warring in your soul, or you're just going to stay where you are and stay stagnant and say, this is where I want to be. My prayer is that all of us who call ourselves Christians would be continually changed using Christ as our example and giving up those worldly idols. Let's pray.